I have to say, uh, our choir, Brother David and all the instrumentals, the music this morning was absolutely wonderful. Praise the Lord for that service this morning and I appreciate Travis and uh, Crystal sharing tonight. I hate to see you guys go. I can't believe you didn't say one phrase while you're up here. Go ahead and say it. Roll tight. tight. That's right. (laughs) Y'all know Crystal's an Alabama girl. She pulls for the tide and so... Uh, we'll have to look over that, <laughs> but I'll, I'll certainly miss y'all, and uh, pray God's blessings on you. Whatever church you go to, it'll be a blessing to them, I promise you that. All right, what kind of king is this? Uh, if you'll take your copy of Scripture and turn to Zechariah, chapter 9. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus made his entrance into the city, the holy city, they would call it, of Jerusalem, And it climaxed in his crucifixion and ultimate celebration of the resurrection. Every single gospel account records the triumphant or triumphal entry. And that's interesting because every gospel writer wrote with an audience in their minds. And we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels. Why is that the case? Anybody know? Because about 90% of everything found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is synonymous. They're, they're, they're similar. However, 90% of what's found in John is unique to itself. So, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptics, and John uh, is different. Even though 10% will be found in the others, you understand. But all four record the triumphant entry, which is <clears throat> interesting. They saw the need... To whatever audience they were preaching and teaching to, as resident evangelists, to put the triumphal entry in there. So, for this reason, Palm Sunday has always held a special place in the life of the church. And if you know your Bible history, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way from Jericho to Jerusalem. They're on the uh, east, they're, they're approaching the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city. And Jesus will send two of his disciples to fetch a stranger's donkey that had never been ridden before. So that he could ride it into the city. And you will find that particular narrative in all four Gospels. And if you want to know where, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12. John, in his account, explains that the disciples honestly did not know at the time what was going on and what Jesus was asking them to do. But the Bible also informs us that after he was glorified, the disciples had what we would call an aha experience. And they, uh, they remember back that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would do this and these things would be done to him. Have you ever had those aha experiences? It's kind of like reading a a book and you're wondering why this particular character early on in the chapters is introduced. And finally, when you get to the end, you're like, oh, that makes great sense. Well, there are many aha moments in the lives of the disciples, hundreds of them. And many of them probably were not recorded in the Bible of questions they had or experiences they went through with the Lord. And they didn't understand what was going on until after the resurrection and ascension They began to put two and two together. So let's uh, read Zechariah 9. Because believe it or not, this is where you have the prophecy of 
the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And one of the aha experiences would be once they put together uh, their understanding of Christ with the Old Testament revelation, this would have been one of those, the lights are turning on. I understand why Jesus did this. Zechariah 9. Now about the first eight verses is going to be a sleeper to you. And you're going to wonder what in the world is going on here. And unfortunately, in the book of Zechariah, sometimes it's hard to track exactly what region he's speaking of, how all this unfolds, but we'll do the best we can. Number, chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ascalon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall re, uh, writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because it hopes, its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people, or translation, a mongrel group shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Everybody awake? Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey? I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of all the earth. Now, can you imagine... What the disciples thought when Jesus said to them, two of them, sends them away and says, I want you to go down to Jerusalem. Now they're one mile away from the city. I want you to go down and I want you to fetch a stranger's donkey. Can you imagine what went through their minds? Uh, perhaps they could have thought, you're nuts. You're asking us to go down into a city just randomly. And find a stranger who has an actual little donkey, the foal of a donkey, and ask us to ride or ask him if he can borrow it so you can get on it to ride it. Look, uh, it would have been easy for them to say, look, Jesus, the fact of the matter is no one has ever ridden this donkey before. Right? That's one of the things. And he says to them, or they say to him, you know, the fact of the matter is you're going to make quite a spectacle Riding on this donkey that has never been ridden before. As a matter of fact, you might even get bucked off. What kind of, you just wonder about the questions that entered 
their minds. But here's the glorious thing about it. Nevertheless, they they obeyed exactly what Jesus told them to do. And one hour later, here's the Lord Jesus Christ riding upon this donkey into Jerusalem. And the remarkable element that we note is the response of the people. Now, we know that they didn't have full understanding. Some probably did. But they're wrestling with his messiahship. He's already told them that he is God in the flesh. But but they're not understanding that. We know that many of his own brothers did not realize who he was until after the resurrection. So, seeing Jesus come through the gates, there's this spontaneous gesture of homage They take off their cloaks, they spread them on the ground, they pull palm branches off the palm trees, and they're waving them back and forth, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The King of Israel hath come. Now, obviously to them, this is a moment of deliverance. Hosanna means, save us, please. And if you remember, we were preaching through the book of Acts, we brought up Psalm 118, verse 25, and here's the verse. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send prosperity. And again, we tied it in Acts because that word Lord is Yahweh. Save Yahweh. And of course, in Acts, we've learned that Peter was driving home the point that the Son of God, that Jesus of Nazareth, is Yahweh God. But in this case, more than likely, they're asking for salvation from Rome. Uh, this is, a, in their mind, a political issue. He's, he's coming in And he's going to save us from Roman bondage. Another remarkable thing is that he accepted their accolades. Which worried somebody. Who got worried about this? Same ones that always got worried about Jesus. He threatened them. And it was the Pharisees. And it was the Sadducees. This could mean trouble with the Romans. Because they wanted everything to just go kosher and smooth. And no no hostility. uh, No insurrections need to take place with Rome. So do you remember what he said? To the Pharisees and Sadducees. If these people do not cry out. The stones will shout out in their place. Have you you ever wondered why Jesus. These actions that he takes on this particular Sunday. Palm Sunday. What was he doing? Riding a donkey. And then threatening the peace of the city. So in order to grasp the significance. We're going to go to this obscure passage. Found in Zechariah chapter 9. And see, I want you to see that Jesus intentionally did this event to signify and signal his role in ministry. What does this passage teach us about our king? What kind of king is this? This passage actually divides into two unequal parts. And you know the unequal parts, right? One through eight. Well, that's kind of difficult. But nine and ten makes a little more sense. You know why? Because you've read the New Testament, right? And you know the rest of the story. But in 1 through 8, we have this background given to us of the condition during Zechariah's day. Kind of uh, giving us a trajectory toward the future. And then verses 9 and 10, we have uh, the king or the agent of God that's going to actually rule. So, uh, let's do two things. First, let's talk about the nature of the Lord's kingdom. And that's 1 through 8. And then we're going to talk about the king that's going to serve His kingdom, that is the king of the kingdom. So first, the nature of the Lord's kingdom. Just track with me. This shouldn't take long. Now this is historical, right? We've got all these regions and cities. What is exactly addressed in these words? Well, one thing we know for sure is that by the time all these national powers have disappeared, 
By this time, all the national powers have disappeared. The political figures of ancient Mideastern map, they're just, it's gone. That's why he's addressing this. So national distinctions are pretty difficult and they're blurred. As a matter of fact, that's why you see that little phrase in there, mixed people or a mongrel nation. It's, it's teaching us that the national distinctions are quite blurred. The question we should ask, however, is what do these verses teach us about the kingdom of God? Because that's the, that's the theme of why he starts 9-1, why the burden of the word of the Lord came to him was to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And here's how we'll answer that. The nature of God's kingdom. First, the kingdom is established by the Lord himself. Notice verse 1, the eyes of men are on the Lord. In other words, he is the subject of all the nations. And folks, uh, whether you realize that or not, he still is. Whether the world recognizes that or not, he's the subject of all the main actions taking place. God is acting. Don't you love watching uh, the Chronicles of Narnia when uh, one of them says, or Lucy says, She's interacting with Aslan, and Aslan reminds her that Aslan is always on the move. And I want to remind you that God is always on the move. And he's always working. It's not cyclical, cyclical. It is linear and with purpose. And God is moving all things that way, and this is what they understand. He's the patron of his people. He and no one else is going to build his kingdom. So that's the first thing of the nature of the kingdom. God himself, the Lord himself will establish it. Number two... Notice the kingdom of God is triumphant over all its foes. And if you know your Old Testament history, these are listed in the traditional orders of the order of the enemies of Israel. One after one, they're listed. And guess who comes out the victor? God and his people every single time. So they are listed in traditional order. They're representative of the armies that swept through the land of Palestine and claimed the territory for themselves. And God said, you're done you don't have that territory anymore, and the Lord wiped them out. So every city, every nation of the world will capitulate to the king. Mark her down. It's going to happen in the future. Every nation will capitulate to him. It will be claimed as God's territory, and he owns it all, and he deserves it all. It's established by the Lord himself. He will be triumph over, triumph over all his foes. Here's the third thing. The kingdom of God takes in people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And I want you to know that this runs across the grain of a Jewish thinking person of Zechariah's day. For them to sit there and think, well, you tell them, you're telling me that it's just not us? We're the chosen people. You're telling me that God's kingdom is going to be made up of every tongue, tribe, nation, and that all of them will be integrated in and become the covenant people of God and the answer to that is, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. And this passage represents the universal scope of God's grace. As a matter of fact, if, it, if that were not the case, you would not be sitting here today worshiping Him. And aren't you thankful for the universal scope of the grace of God, which includes every tribe and tongue and nation in this world? What a wonderful lesson. In Christ, as this text says, there is no east or west. There's no north or south. Missouri is kind of in the middle, right? Yeah, whatever. North and south. 
you know, if we're thinking about the U.S., in Christ, as we learn in Galatians 3.28, there is no slave nor free. Well, folks, there's no Irish or Dutch or white or brown or any shade in between. If Jesus could have in his, not only save her, but put her in his genealogy, Rahab the harlot, uh, there's hope for us. If Jesus can save Bathsheba the Hittite and then place her in his family tree, there's room in the kingdom of God for you and me. That should have, I should have gotten one amen on that one, right? If God can put uh, the other scoundrels in his genealogical tree that were made up of men, not just women, then uh, there's hope for us. One day, a remnant for our God will be claimed from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why our church is not only engaged in domestic missions, but also frontier missions. And sometimes we think, well, why, why are we getting on a plane when we have so much we can do around here? Well, usually the people that say that do very little around here. And the other reason is because we have a mandate from our king. And you say, well, uh, let him use the missionaries that we've placed over there. That's not enough. Uh, you're going to get a letter in a week or so about a mission offering that we need to take up for our church to help us with our own mission endeavors. Now, that's different from Lottie and Annie. Uh, these are things like the Houston trip and Louisville and Guatemala. And in that letter, I remind you that you only have three conditions. There are only three people, only three kinds of responses to being a world Christian. You're either a goer, a sender, or you're disobedient. You have no other option. You're either a goer. Not everybody can go down in the well, but everybody can help send. Just like in Romans 15, Paul says, I'm going to Spain. He didn't want to take everybody with him, but he said, help me get there, right? And so there are goers, and there are senders, and we need senders, right? Not everybody can go on a foreign mission trip, and you probably shouldn't go on a foreign mission trip, but everybody can be a goer or a sender, but if you're not one of those, according to what God's mandate is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then you're disobedient. I don't apologize for telling you that. I'm just telling you what the scripture teaches to us. So, hallelujah for the fact that the gospel is going to go there. As we learn from the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. That makes Baptists already nervous, right? <laughs> you better get over it because when you get to heaven, you're going to at least sing one new song at the Baptist, right? And you're going to like it, no matter what. Uh, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Hallelujah. Praise God. There's room for me, right? There's room for you. Now hold on to your seat. The focus now is going to go away from the kingdom. And we're going to talk about the king that will be installed. Now this is common sense. When you've got a kingdom, a king must be installed, right? And now we're going to learn about the king in 9 and 10. Remember those verses, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. And it runs into uh, the prophecy being fulfilled in the Gospels with the triumphal entry. Now what kind of king is he? Let's track down through there. First, he will be Zion's expected king. Your king is coming 
to you. You see that? Behold, your king is coming to you. So he's going to be the expected king. Who are they looking for? Well, the natural response would be, David would have someone sitting on his throne forever. So it's going to be David coming back or someone like David, uh, who was the greatest king in Israel's history. And so what do we know about the kingdom at this time? Man, it's in decay. It's in decline. And on the surface, all hope is gone. And then Zechariah proclaims to the people about this great restoration that is on the way. But this king is not like Nero who fiddles while Rome burns. He's not an ayatollah that shames his citizens. He's the king that will make the daughter of Jerusalem leap for joy. That's the king that is on the way. Children will sing Hosanna. Old men will dream dreams. Slave girls will prophesy. The blind will see. We've learned this in Mark, right? In Chris's exposition. The the lame will walk. The deaf will hear. The lepers will be cleansed. The poor will have the good news of Jesus preached to them. The king is coming. Right? You should expect him. Don't you love that song? Oh, the king. We should have had that tonight, right? We, we can't have that, right? No. Put you on the spot, right? And I know that rascal can sing it, don't you? Yeah, he can. The king is coming. Well, that's, that song is about the second time he comes. But in this particular note, the expectancy from Zechariah, in the midst of all despair and the fact that there's no hope at all, God gives Zechariah those words, your king is coming, expect him. Number two, who will be a righteous king? He will rule according to the standard of God's will. He will stand victoriously, always on the side of right. He is righteous in himself. The Bible says that our king knew no sin and became sin for us. And he will also bless those whom the world has cursed because they stood for the righteousness of God. The ones who have waited in faith and patience, like old Simeon and Anna, The ones who have stood true to the word of God. When they saw the king, when they held the baby in their arms, they saw the real king of kings, right? They were expecting him. Not everybody was expecting him to come as a suffering servant, but Simeon and Anna, they did. So he will be Zion's expected king who will be a righteous king. And then the text says something interesting here that you have to do your homework on. The Bible says... Behold, your king is coming to you righteous, and having salvation is he. What a difficult Hebrew construction. Salvation is he. Well, the the rendering actually is he will be rescued. Now, the New King James Version says salvation is something he gives. The NASB says endowed with salvation. The NIV says having salvation. But the Hebrew word is literally saved. He will be saved But to call the coming Messiah saved is so strange that interpreters and translators just can't accept that particular wording. But really it refers to him having been saved from some kind of ordeal. A king who needs to be saved. And Zechariah, of course, is talking about the one that would be delivered by God. And if you're Sunday's children, then you know what he's talking about. He's talking about the glorious resurrection. There it is. Even in the Hebrew Bible, he will be saved. He will be rescued. It's a glorious resurrection. This king 
riding on a donkey, will be treated in such a way that he needs to be saved from some kind of ordeal, not because of his own sin, but because of mine and yours. Right? And Peter says this in his sermon. Acts 2, once again, he preaches his first sermon, and he says this to them, that he says to the crowd, you killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, having loosed the birth pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Thus he would be rescued, delivered, glorious resurrection. In other words, God saved Jesus from the grave. So, if you're tracking with me, this king that will serve will be Zion's expected king, a righteous king. He will be rescued. And here's the fourth thing. He will be humble. Humble and mounted, mounted on a donkey. Meek and lowly, opposed to proud and haughty. Kings are normally rich and proud. But this one will be meek and lowly. He will identify with the people. He won't come on a royal stallion this time but riding on the foal of a donkey, and a borrowed one at that. That's the king. What the humility of Jesus means, that he was willing to be so afflicted and so abused and so defeated that he might save me and you. Do you remember the verse in 2 Corinthians 8 9? For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, when was that? He said, he, boxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. When was Jesus ever rich? Well, folks, he didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He was rich in all of his glory as the Son of God, 100% in complete communion with his Father for all eternity. He that was rich, though he became poor, when did he become poor? Well, it started when he left heaven to be born in Bethlehem. And it led all the way up in humiliation to the cross of Christ. Though he was poor... Though he was rich, he became poor that through his poverty, we might become rich. Y'all know that verse? You're looking at me kind of strange. As a matter of fact, that's one of the greatest Christmas texts in the Bible. The glory of God before he came into this world, he was rich. The incarnation, he became poor. And the salvation he brought to us, that through his poverty, we might become rich. And so he was humble, willing to be afflicted. So that you might be saved. Here's the fifth thing. He will inaugurate a reign of universal peace. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace. Not just to Jerusalem. But to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Don't you look forward to that shalom. Right? That kind of universal peace. That we're going to have. Now here's the king. Who comes in humility. To Jerusalem some 1970 years ago, riding on a donkey of peace. And now today, he reigns in heaven supreme and he's going to command peace among all the nations. That's coming in the future. Aren't you thankful for that? His reign begins humbly in Jerusalem, but then it spreads to all Judea. And all the way to the ends of the earth. That's our God. That's what he's going to do. Notice uh, Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. Verses 2 through 4. Isaiah is going to speak of this rain. 
Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's coming in the future. But remember, here's the tragedy. If he's not ruling your life, then he's not your king. You know the Christmas hymn, Rule in Our Hearts Today. If he's not your king personally, then he's not reigning and ruling your life. But I'm, I'm very thankful that in future years there'll be no West Point, there'll be no Air Force Academy, and no wars. No need to bomb Syria, right? No more of that. Universal peace. But again, remember, the text says that when he was born in Bethlehem and the angel announced it, the angel said, peace on earth and goodwill. Well, that's a contradiction, isn't it? Because there's never been peace on earth completely. Well, that's because the text actually is rendered peace upon those in whom his favor rests. In other words, you've got to know Jesus. In order to, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world, chaos, everything, but you can walk through it with peace because your peace is Christ, right? Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, not as the world gives you, but my peace. That's what we need, right? We need his peace. And the Bible tells us explicitly here that he will inaugurate a reign of universal peace. Now, do you see the significance of why Jesus said, Go fetch me a donkey? Why? Because I am the legitimate king. He knew exactly what he was, who he was. He knew exactly what he was about to do. And he knew the ultimate triumph of God. I am the legitimate king installed by my father. Why? Because the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the father. Now listen, what kind of king did they want that day? What kind of king do you need? Well, you need a savior, right? You need a servant king who died to save you from your sins. But what kind of king were they looking for? Nathan uh, caught this through Sunday school and, and the sermon this morning about Barabbas. And I, I gave you that illustration this morning. But, but Nathan asked me that. He said, Dad, why is it that during the triumphal entry they're, they're crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He didn't say it that clearly, you understand. But still... Basic, and then five days later, they're crying, crucify him. He just, he couldn't wrap his mind around that. Well, we know that, of course, that is the case with many of them. They're, they're, um, there's a couple of reasons. Now, how do, you, how do you answer that as a dad? Well, it all comes back to what kind of king they were looking for. Is that not true? It is. Uh, what kind of king were they anticipating? Well, ultimately, the, the first answer is, it happened that way because God Almighty determined it would, right? Uh, we, we saw that in Acts chapter 2. Jesus was delivered up according to the preordained plan of his Father. 
But there's another culpable reason for us and the Israelites. Well, they put him to death. So their response was, throw off the Roman bondage, the yoke. But when they found out he was going to be a suffering servant in fulfillment of the Bible, then it was easy for the religious leaders to manipulate the crowd and, and uh, you know, mob type of things and uh, to, to end up screaming out, crucify him. So it is. What kind of king is he to you? Is he your king? Well, he has to first be your Savior and Lord, right? And I hope that he's ruling in your hearts today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, just to take a little bit of time today and unpack uh, the Passover and how it connects with the Lord's Supper. And then, Lord, to think about Palm Sunday and what that means. And how that, Lord God, you knew exactly what you were doing uh, when you told the disciples to go fetch that donkey. You are the king. And Lord, I pray that we would accept you as king, savior and king, Lord of lords, king of kings, and all that that means. And the fact that you came as our king and you gave your life for us that we might be saved from our sins. Lord, that's the king that we needed. One that would suffer and die, but the grave could not hold you. And you resurrected and you are installed forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us bow before you. And Father, as your people, help us to be mindful of the nations. Lord, help us to think about every tribe and every tongue. Lord, all across this world, Father, there are people that are going to come to you. And you've asked us to be obedient, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we thank you for the commission that we've been given. And we thank you for the fulfillment of what you said you're going to accomplish. And your word reminds us that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth, and then the end will come. Father, thank you for this night, and I pray you would speak to our hearts during the invitation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Publishing company does a. This would be 